We're going to skip a portion of this. When I say skip, we're not going to read through all of this. When we last encountered Paul, we were at the end of Acts chapter 22, and Paul had been arrested. Uh, remember, it was, the, it was the Jews from Asia that saw Paul in the temple and decided and, and realized, hey, this is the guy that disrupted things in Ephesus, and remember, they tried to get him there, and Paul had to be lowered down uh, from the wall of the city and escape. And they caused a big stir, and they followed Paul wherever he went. And so they're, they're all in Jerusalem, and they see him, and they create this big controversy. And they falsely accused Paul of preaching certain things contrary to God and contrary to the law. They also accused Paul of bringing Gentiles into the temple, which was a big, big no-no. And they told all the Jews gathered there for the feast that Paul had done these things and, and that created this mob that Paul ultimately was rescued from. And he's protected by the Roman soldiers, and he's under arrest, and the Roman soldiers are trying to figure out what actually this guy has done and why it's caused such a stir among the Jews in the city. And so the commander decides that he wants to try to figure out what's going on here, so he lets Paul have another session before the council, and then Paul realizes they're Sadducees and Pharisees. And do you know why the Sadducees were sad? Because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the spirit. They believed that when you died, that's it. You're done. You just go back to the dust. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the spirit. That's why they're sad, you see. They had no hope beyond this life. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul believed in the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection. He believed in the spirit. He believed in angels. And Paul realized as they're uh, making all these accusations against him that he's got these two groups there and he realized that um, a lot of the problem is because of his belief in the resurrection and so he points this out and the crowd becomes divided and there's dissension between the crowd and they become violent toward Paul again. So Paul's taken. He's arrested. This group of 40 assassins decide they're going to kill him. They're not going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. And they create this plan to bring Paul one more time down to visit. And when they bring him down to supposedly have this, this trial to clear out all the charges, these assassins were going to descend upon Paul and kill him, even if it meant that they would be killed by the Romans. That's how passionately they hated Paul it wasn't really Paul they hated. It was God they hated. It was Christ they hated. These are the same people that crucified Jesus. And so long story short, Paul's nephew overhears this plan to have Paul assassinated. And he goes and he tells the Roman commander. And the Roman commander, this make a great movie by the way. The Roman commander uh, takes Paul 9 o'clock at night. He calls for 
200 foot soldiers, 200 spearmen, and 70 horsemen. That's 470 heavily armed Roman soldiers that are guarding Paul. So this should tell us something about the seriousness of this situation. And so they leave at 9 at night and they travel 42 miles to this city called Antipatris. And then it took them all night to get there. Then the next day, all the soldiers go and the 70 horsemen take Paul to Caesarea where Felix the governor is. And Felix the governor is going to hear Paul's case and they take Paul to Caesarea so he would be protected from the Jews who want to kill him. So this is where we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 24 and we're going to look at verses 24 through 27. Acts 24, 24. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So when Paul is taken to Caesarea, we see in the scripture the timeline is given to us. When he appears before Felix the first time, he says, it's only been 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And then there's a, another time period where it was after five days um, that, that um, the commander comes and, and all this stuff. So by the time Paul is here the second time, appealing to Felix. Verse 24 says, after some days. So it doesn't tell us how many days, but we do know his first encounter with Felix was, um, was 12 days. And now when Felix leaves and Festus succeeds him as the governor of this region, Paul has been bound for over two years, waiting and what was Festus doing? He was waiting for Paul to pay him a bribe. And Festus was content to leave Paul there, hoping that Paul would get tired of sitting um, in confinement, uh, a prisoner of Festus, and just go ahead and pay him off. So what does this tell us about Festus? It tells us that Festus was not an honorable man. Festus was a governor but he was just another crooked politician willing to take a bribe. There is a name for that, people who sell themselves for money, and that's what Festus, or that's what Felix was. But here it says that when Paul is talking with Felix, that he reasons with him. So this word reasons with him, it's not so much that Festus and 
Paul, there no doubt was an interaction. It wasn't an argument. It wasn't a dispute. This word reason conveys more like a teacher teaching or someone making a formal presentation. It would be very similar to what you would see in a courtroom when someone is giving testimony or they, they would say, okay, Mr. Mr. Uh, Paul, go ahead and tell the court your story, how you came to be here. And so Paul begins to do that. But you notice that as Paul is reasoning, Festus calls him in and he wants, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. One thing we know about Felix is Felix was more knowledgeable of the way. It tells us this in the earlier chapters. That when he comes to Felix, Felix was more knowledgeable in the way. So Felix was aware of the Christians. Felix was aware of Jesus. Felix was aware of the way. That's what the Christians early on were called. They were called the way. It wasn't until Paul goes to Antioch and it was in Antioch that the people began to call them Christians, which actually was a derogatory term. Uh, it was meant to be derogatory. But the way was another term used to describe those Jews who followed Christ. And so Paul is brought specifically here so that Felix can hear him concerning the faith in Christ. And it says that there were three things that they talked about. It says that Paul addressed Felix and he lays out the gospel. He makes his presentation to the governor. Not just a defense for his arrest, but he is making his defense of the gospel. Because Felix wants to hear about this faith. And we see that Paul addresses three specific areas the scripture shows us here, tells us here. He addressed these things. He reasoned with Felix concerning righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. So Paul, when he is called to appear before Felix, Paul sees the divine hand of God at work as the Lord was leading Paul to Rome. Because Paul knew this is where he was going. He was on his way to Rome. Now how he was going to ultimately get there, at this point, Paul might not have known that. But Paul knew he was going to Rome because the Lord Jesus had appeared to him while he was imprisoned back in Jerusalem after they were trying to tear him apart and the Jews were trying to kill him. The Lord Jesus appeared to Paul and promised that he would make it to Rome. This is recorded for us in Acts 23.11. But the following night, after this mob scene, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. So Paul had no doubt he was going to get to Rome. And as we go through and we see Paul on his journey to Rome, there's a lot that happens to him. But Paul never lost faith that he was going to make it to Rome, even when he shipwrecked in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. 
He knew that he was going to make it to Rome, that God would not allow him to die before he was able to testify at Rome. So Paul knows that Felix, like every other person, needs to hear the gospel and the salvation that comes only through Jesus Christ. And Paul, in obedience to Christ, delivers the gospel to Felix, as Paul did with everyone he encountered. Whoever God put in his path, Paul would deliver the gospel to them. And Felix had been put in Paul's path by God. Now, we don't know everything that Paul said, but we know those specific areas that Paul addressed concerning righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And we also know this, as a result of Paul's reasoning concerning these things, the Bible tells us that Felix was afraid. Now, here is the Roman governor who has the the might of Rome at his fingertips, But yet it says, here is this prisoner reasoning about the gospel and this governor in this position of power, it says, is afraid. Now what's interesting is that, uh, and we'll look at this a little bit later, is that Felix wasn't just afraid, Felix was quite alarmed. Righteousness concerns our spiritual standing before God. Self-control concerns our walk in this life and our lifestyle, how we walk out our life and our lifestyle in our bodies. Judgment, the judgment to come concerns that day when all men will appear before God and give an account for how they walked out their lives and whether they are in right standing before God or not. And so Paul reasoned with Felix concerning righteousness. Paul knew that Felix, of all men, must consider their spiritual standing before God. In other words, Felix didn't get a pass because he was a governor. Caesar didn't get a pass because he ruled the world. And no man today gets a pass because of some position they occupy. God demands righteousness, and we must know what righteousness is and how it is achieved. Our righteousness or our right standing before God, and that's what righteousness basically means, is our standing before God. Is it right or is it not right? If we have righteousness, we have right standing before God. And that right standing comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. Christ alone is our righteousness and he alone is our salvation. So all who trust in Jesus are made righteous righteous before God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I want you to notice the language Paul uses there. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. So through faith in Jesus, we are made righteous. Paul reasoned with Felix concerning righteousness. And Paul, no doubt, would have revealed to Felix that our righteousness is not earned through the deeds of the flesh. We don't work our way to righteousness. We're not made righteous by keeping the law and the ordinances. 
but righteousness is accounted or gifted to us through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the only way that we can become righteous. Though we are not saved by the deeds of the flesh, our deeds are important. In fact, they're very important. They're important in giving witness to Christ in this world. We must one day give an account to God for all of our works, the Bible says. For all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10. And the good news for every believer is that Jesus has paid for our sin already. So we're not going to stand in the judgment and give an account for our sin because in Christ our sin has been taken away by the blood of Jesus. But we will it is very clear in the scripture, give an account for how we walked out our life, how we lived our life. What did we do with the salvation that was given to us in Jesus? Just like the parable of the talents. We are stewards with what God has given us, and we will give an account of what we do with those things God entrusts to us. And your life given to you in Jesus, there is nothing more valuable than that. Though we are not saved by those deeds, our deeds, again, give witness to our salvation in Christ. So we don't earn, we don't achieve right standing before God. It's, based, it's not based on how we live, though we live our life and how we live our life should indicate whether we are in right standing or not. So if I profess faith in Jesus, that should be seen and manifest through my life, how I live, how I walk, how I talk. That's not saving me. That should be an indication that I have been saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So Paul goes on in the following verse there in Ephesians 2.10 and he talks about how God has prepared beforehand good works for us to walk in. Not so that we can achieve salvation, but as a means of walking out our salvation that has been gifted to us by grace through faith in Jesus. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are justified by faith apart from the deeds of the flesh. And as true as that is, how we walk in this life absolutely makes a difference. And this is why Paul reasoned with Felix, not just about righteousness, but also about self-control. Paul reasoned with Felix concerning self-control. All men must consider how they walk or how they live in this world. We live in our body of flesh, and it is our body of flesh that gives our soul and our spirit expression. The Greek word for soul is the Greek word suke. It's the seed of the mind, the will, and the emotions. How is the will of your mind, your emotions, how is all of that made manifest? It's made manifest through your body. And there's a reason why self-control is important. And this is why Paul writes in his letter to the Romans that we are to present our bodies to God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul writes, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, 
that you may prove how, through your bodies, through how you live your life, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In other words, we are to live self-controlled lives and not lives given over to worldly lust and sin. And this is why Paul reasoned with Felix concerning self-control. Self-control is last, but certainly not least, in the list of characteristics we commonly call the fruit of the Spirit. We find these in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, where Paul writes, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then Paul says, against such, there is no law. There's no law against the fruit of the Spirit. There is absolutely law against the works of the flesh. And so these these characteristics listed here that we call the fruit of the Spirit are not nine different fruits of the Spirit. There is only one Spirit, and there's only one fruit of the Spirit, but that fruit is characterized at a minimum, in these nine virtues listed here. These nine virtues are characteristics of our life in the Spirit, and they're all connected together. When Paul is reasoning about self-control, he's not doing so apart from any of the other virtues. In other words, self-control is directly connected to love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness. I mean, think, just think about those terms. Think about those characteristics and how they are absolutely related to self-control. And think about how love relates to all of those, or how peace relates to all of those, or how joy relates to all of those. All of these describe the virtuous characteristics that define the life and the lifestyle of the one who has the life in the spirit of Jesus. Faithfulness is faith. A life of faith is a self-controlled life. It's a life filled with love, with peace, with joy, with all of these things. They're all connected here. And if we've been born again of the spirit, then ours is to be a life and a lifestyle consistent with the spirit of God, consistent with Jesus. The Spirit and its fruit should be most evident in the life of the believer. Self-control is a key indicator that the Spirit of Christ dwells in us and that we are submitted to the Spirit. Now, it's possible that Christ dwells in us, but we don't always submit to the will of the Spirit. Anybody ever been there? I'm there all the time. And so it doesn't mean that the Spirit doesn't live in you, but when we are not self-controlled, when we give place to outburst of wrath, or when we give place to giving our body over to sin instead of to righteousness, it is a sign that we are not living controlled by the Spirit, submitted to the Spirit, that we're giving ourselves to someone or to something else other than God. And so the Spirit in us does what? It convicts us of our sin. It calls us to repentance, and we repent, confess our sin to God. And what does God do? Say, well, I don't really believe you this time because this is the 57th time you've, you've done this today. No, God says when we repent and we faithfully repent, sincerely repent, God forgives us. It's gone. It's taken care of, covered by the blood of Jesus. 
And so these are indicators of whether our life is submitted to God or not, whether we're submitted to the will of the Spirit, to the control of the Spirit. So we don't come into right standing or righteousness before God by our works. Our works, though, or the fruit of the Spirit bear witness to Christ in us. If we are connected to the root, if we are abiding in the vine, then we, the branches, are meant to bear fruit. And what does that fruit look like? What does it sound like? The fruit of the Spirit listed there in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Or we could say it like this, it looks like Jesus. It looks like the way Jesus loved us. And that's how we're to love one another. And that's how we're to love God, the very same way Jesus loved his Father. So Paul reasoned with Felix concerning righteousness and concerning self-control, his spiritual standing before God, but also the way he lived his life on this earth. Felix didn't get a pass. Now remember, they're living in the Greek world. It's under the Roman Empire, but the influence of the world was from Greece. Greek philosophy Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all of these guys have heavily now for centuries influenced the world. And by the time Paul is standing before Felix, the world for the most part, the known world at that time, China is separated by mountains and desert and they're living isolated over there except for the silk traders that would come and sell silk to the Roman Empire because silk was more valuable than gold in the Roman Empire. Our students learned that in world history, didn't you? And so, the known world thought according to Greek philosophy. And in Greek philosophy, the body didn't matter. What you did in the body didn't matter. And so, this is why sin was so prolific in this culture. God says what you do in your body absolutely matters. It's always mattered. It's why God distinct, it made a distinction between his people and the rest of the world. And God called his people to live righteously and holy before him. And it's no different now. And so Felix is hearing the gospel and he's got this Greek mentality and he's finding out from Paul that he's going to have to give an account of how he lives his life in this world, in this body. And what he does in the body actually matters. And he will stand before God one day and give an account. So Paul reasoned concerning righteousness, his spiritual standing, but also self-control, how he walked through this world. And then Paul reasoned with him concerning the judgment to come. Now I believe Paul was led by God in his reasoning with Felix. The scripture reveals these three areas that Paul addresses with Felix concerning faith in Christ, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment. And as a result of Paul reasoning with Felix in these three areas, the scripture tells us that Felix was afraid. The word that marks his fear in this verse marks an intense fear or alarm. So we could accurately say it this way, because this, this word is used in this way. Felix was terrified by what he heard. In fact, he was so terrified that he didn't want to hear anymore. Now, think about this. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment sound like three simple points, but they encompass so much more. 
than we might first realize. Through these three points, Paul would be able to touch on any area of Scripture as he is reasoning concerning faith in Christ and the gospel. And this reasoning with Felix concerning the judgment uh, was a direct call to repentance, and don't think that it was not. It didn't matter whether Paul was facing lepers or whether Paul was facing the emperor himself. Paul was not afraid to tell the truth. And we see this here as he stands before the governor and he calls the governor to repentance by reasoning with him concerning the judgment. And the scripture tells us that as Paul reasons concerning this judgment, Felix is afraid as a result of this conversation. And that acknowledgement of fear in Felix really tells us a lot. Paul no doubt made a moving and inspired presentation of the gospel, so much so that the truth terrified Felix. But fear did not move Felix to faith. Instead, Felix dealt with his fear by ignoring it, by running from it, as people often do. Felix sent Paul away so that he would not have to face his fear. Felix, in other words, distracted himself with something else rather than deal honestly with the gospel that had been presented to him. Felix was afraid. He was afraid of God, and rightly so. He chose to ignore his fear And instead of acting on his fear and humbling himself before God, Felix chose to ignore his fear and so ignore God. In ignoring the truth, Felix did what all men do apart from God's grace. He suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. Remember this, rebellion is man's problem, not ignorance. It's not that man doesn't know. We've learned this on Wednesday night in Romans. The scripture makes it very clear Man's problem is not his ignorance of God. Man's problem is his rebellion against God because God has shown him and God has caused him to understand, but man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. And this is exactly what Felix is doing here, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Ignoring God does not make the reason we should be afraid go away. It may make us feel less conscious of our fear, but it does not make the reason we should be fearful less real. The gospel convicts men and calls men to repentance of their sin and calls them to faith in the only worthy Savior, Jesus Christ. That same gospel that will save men will also judge men. Man's response to the gospel determines whether men are fit for salvation or fit for wrath. The rejection of the gospel means we have judged Jesus unworthy as Savior and ourselves worthy of his wrath. Felix was no different than many people today. People, both great and small, ignore God as though he is completely indifferent to man and man's sin or as though he does not exist at all. No amount of ignoring or deflecting or pretending God does not exist will change the reality that we will all appear before him one day in the judgment to come. Paul made this crystal clear to Felix, which is why Felix was terrified at what he heard. As much as man wants to change God by sinfully creating 
our own God in our own sinful image, we cannot. He is the creator. We are the creation. To seek to do so is sin, and we will experience the judgment of God for our sin if we do not give our sin to Jesus Christ and trust in him. It is not God. It is we who must change. We must be changed and transformed into new creations, born again to be conformed to the image of the risen Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, all things are made new. This is good news. I'm going to repeat, this is good news. This is the power of the gospel. It changes us from the inside out, and it conforms us to the image of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling and working in us. If you want to know how God works in us, just look at the trees. Have you noticed all the trees that were bare, lost all their leaves, even trees that don't normally lose their trees like oak trees? I've got trees yesterday. I was out in my yard, and I'm trying to figure out whether these trees died in the freeze or not. Some did. But then I look on these trees, and I'm breaking dry branches that just have no, no sap left in them at all. They're just like dead dry. But then I look, and there's just a little speck of green, just a little green shoot, barely visible, coming out of, of these branches. What does that tell us? There's life inside. And this is how God changes us. He changes us from the inside out. Our right standing with God is given to us in an instant when we are born again. Spiritually, we are made right with God. But God doesn't leave us there. God expects us to walk out our faith. That right standing must become manifest. And it is manifest exactly the way leaves on a tree are manifest from winter coming into spring. It grows from the inside out, and we are changed and transformed from the inside out. If the tree's alive, it's got to bear fruit. It's got to produce leaves, and it will ultimately bear fruit. If we are in Christ, we are alive, and we must ultimately show forth that life and ultimately bear fruit. This is the work of God by his Spirit in each and every believer. Thanks be to God. Let's all stand. As Paul reasoned with Felix, presenting the gospel to him concerning righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, we as followers of Jesus must know that we are righteous in Christ through faith in Him and that we are to live righteously. As followers of Jesus, we are to know that we are called to a life of self-control, which is just one characteristic connected to all of the fruit of the Spirit. A life marked by self-control is a life also marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness.
Against such there is no law. Therefore we are to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. As followers of Christ, we are to know that we will appear before God in the judgment day to come. And if we are not trusting in Christ and his righteousness, that reality should terrify us. For all men will appear in that day of judgment. But if we are trusting in Christ and walking in the Spirit, we can have confidence in the day of judgment. For John writes that as he is, so are we in this world. And now his perfect love has cast out all fear. Therefore, as we know his perfect love and we allow that love to be manifest in us and the finished work of Christ made known through us, let that love, let that perfect love cast out all fear and have confidence in the day of judgment. Father, we thank you all that you've given to us in Jesus. We thank you for all the good and perfect gifts, spiritually and naturally. Father, as we have considered the good and perfect gift that you've given to us in Jesus and the salvation we have through faith in Jesus, Father, as we get ready to go next door to eat natural food, we recognize that, Lord, even the food we eat and the air we breathe and everything we have comes from you, for you are the creator of, of all things. We acknowledge you as the creator, as the giver of life, and we give you thanks. Let the food we eat today be nourishment to our bodies. Let our fellowship be encouragement to us and glory to you. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Let's sing our thanks to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. All right, go next door. Join us for lunch. You all are welcome.